Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for including us in your story. You are the author of life itself, the author of history as we know it. You are the sovereign God, and you have chosen for reasons beyond what I can comprehend to include us in what you're doing. You have given of yourself time and time again, bending over backwards to reach out to us when we've gone astray. And we thank you for that as much as we can even understand it. As we engage in the story of the Exodus again this fall, we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds and help us to see how even in the 21st century, we in this church in a small neighborhood in Bellingham could be part of what you're doing, both in the past and into the present and into the future. Thank you for your ministry, Holy Spirit, of opening the word to us. Amen. In the beginning, sounds like the beginning of a story, doesn't it? A lot of stories start that way. And I want you to think about how what we believe about our story shapes us. How what you believe about the story that you live in, whether it's your life history or the story of your nation or the story of your people, how that shapes how you understand yourself and how you understand the world. Here's a narrative. In the beginning, there was nothing but mass and energy. Who knows how it got there or how it happened, but one day through chance, stars were born, planets were formed, and galaxies and the universe took shape. In one galaxy um, among billions, around one star among trillions, there was a planet called Earth that just happened to have the right combination of mass and atmosphere, temperature and size, just the right conditions for life as we know it. Different forms of life ruled on this planet for billions of years until recently, relatively speaking, Human beings evolved and became the foremost active agents in history. We emerged out of chance with no purpose other than survival and procreation of the species. If, if that's our narrative, if that's our story, how would that shape us? And if that was our story, what ethics, the way we live and treat each other, would naturally flow from that narrative? How would we make sense of our existence and our relationship to one another and the world in which we live? Here's another narrative. In the beginning, a prime mover, a god or a force or a benevolent power created the earth as we know it. Traces of this force or life force were, were put inside every living thing, every tree, plant, animal, and human being. And it is possible for special human beings to know the mysteries of this force. If one is fit and enlightened enough, they may rise up to the top elite few and rule over the masses with their knowledge and power. 
If this is the story we share, the narrative that forms us and shapes us, what kind of ethics would naturally flow from that narrative? How would we come to understand ourselves or the world around us? How do we relate to one another? See, it seems to me that it is vital to know the story in which we're living if we're to understand ourselves and how to relate to the people around us and how to relate to this environment that we live in. The story we believe and we trust and we inhabit shapes who we believe we are and who we will become. So the question is, what story do you inhabit? Now, that's probably not a question you ask like that, at least, very often. I know I don't, at least not intentionally. But each one of us does something intentionally that does remind us of the story we live in. It reminds us of who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. And that thing that we all do, and I'm not just talking about people that go to church, I'm talking about every person who's ever lived, the thing we all do is we worship. Everybody worships. Anthropologists have yet to discover a people group who does not worship, right? From the most sophisticated societal constructs to the most primitive tribal communities, all people worship. All people give time. They give energy and resources devoted to an object of their worship. There's almost no end to the ways that people have worshipped throughout history. Um, Throughout the ages, various people have worshipped gods and goddesses, other humans, animals, trees, the celestial bodies, bodies of water, and even political movements and ideals. And most recently, in the last few hundred years since the the so-called enlightenment and its emphasis on the person and and the singularity, many people in the Western world have come to worship things like their ambition or their comfort or security or addictions and self advancement. And the one thing that we all have in common, no matter who we worship or what we worship or how we worship, is that worship reinforces our shared narrative. Worship matters. It forms us. It it shapes the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world in which we live. So you and I are here, I suspect, because you want to worship the living God, or maybe you got invited by a friend and you're curious about what worshiping Jesus looks like or, or feels like, so you're here checking it out. We're here to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and, and you're here, I believe, theologically speaking, because God has drawn you here. The scriptures claim that we can't even want to want God without God inviting us to want Him. It's pretty cool. Um, And and, and we're here to, to tell the story and be reminded of the ways that he's acted in history, and and, and to think creatively about how the living God is inviting us to embody the story he's writing. And each fall season, I know it's not fall yet, and don't try and take my summer away either, but let's just call it fall season because my kids are in school. Each fall season, we're committed to rehearsing the story of Scripture before Jesus became incarnate, before Paul's writings, and before the resurrection, before the church ever existed. Uh, And we do this, we, we... we, we study these scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, for several reasons. One is because two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. There's a lot, lot there. And we do this because Jesus and the early church leaned on these scriptures as their scriptures. And we do this 
because most of us know far too little than we would like about these these scriptures that, that Jesus and Paul and John of Patmos, they, they all assume their readers know these stories. So here's how this story begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things, the earth and the sea and the sky, plants and animals, mountains and valleys, and the crown of his creation, according to this story, are human beings. He created men and women both in his image, both with equal standing before God. And he created them to flourish, to multiply, to rule over the earth and to tend it responsibly and benevolently. And whether this process took six literal days or six billion years is not the point of the story. The point is that God is the creator and that means that you're not a mistake and this creation is not an accident. God walked with these first human beings, Adam, which means earth man, and Eve, which means life or mother of life. And Adam and Eve enjoyed fellowship and intimacy with the living God and with each other until one day they were tempted by the Satan, the accuser. And he got in their heads and he got in their hearts and they were tempted to doubt God's love for them and they disobeyed God, breaking their relationship with him. And from then on, I think you can agree with this, humans have struggled with the nagging doubt that maybe, just maybe, God isn't really for us. It's not really with us, that maybe I could do it better myself, maybe I better just cover my bases. But God didn't give up because of this rebellion. And in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. And and he says, I'm going to bless you and all your descendants, which will be more than the sands of the seashore, which is a lot, and more than the stars of the sky, which is a lot. And I'm going to bless you and these people so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And they're going to know that I am the, the Lord. Well, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Come on now. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom a favorite named the fancy coat. There we go. Okay. And Joseph's brother, they hated him. And they sold him to slave traders heading to Egypt. And just when it seemed like God had abandoned Joseph, he gave him the ability to rise to a position of second in command of the kingdom of Egypt. And God enabled Joseph to lead with great wisdom, and and so much so that there was a famine that lasted seven years, and Joseph led the nation through so that not only Egypt survived, but they had enough in their coffers to be handing out food to other starving nations and other people. Do you know that at that moment, Egypt, under the command of Joseph, under the power of God, looked more like the kingdom of God than almost any other nation in any other time. Perhaps the only other one was uh, Solomon before he went off the rails and the queen of Sheba was coming bringing gifts and talking about the wisdom of God and and her servant Solomon. So so God has done this amazing thing in Egypt. uh, Israel is starting to fulfill this promise and this role of bringing the nations into the fold. And of course, Joseph's position there helps to save his father, Jacob, and the people of Israel. And so they move down into, into Egypt, and that's where the book of Genesis stops. And the book of Exodus begins. But from the very beginning of Exodus, we see something has gone different. 
there's a change in power, and a new king, a new pharaoh has arisen. And this pharaoh is nationalistic and xenophobic. And so he begins to close his borders to foreigners. And then, any of the foreigners that are already in his borders, like the Israelites and the Hyksos and some other uh, Hebraic nations, he turned them into slaves. And so he forgot this relationship with, with Joseph and his people. And for 400 years, roughly, the Israelite people toiled in slavery, making bricks for the different construction projects of the pharaohs. And it looked like the promise was in serious danger. But God sent a man named Moses, a young man who had escaped death as an infant, was raised by an Egyptian princess, and he, he became, through a lot of trials and stuff that we preached on two years ago, uh, <laughs> he became a man of great humility and of great obedience. And he learned to trust in God, not in his own strength and resources. And, and so God sent him before Pharaoh, and through the power of ten plagues, he convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. And so they are... Uh, so powerful is God's convincing of Pharaoh that Pharaoh tells his people, these rich Egyptians, take the gold out of your ears. I want you to give all this gold and precious metal to these Israelites so that they can go worship their God. I want you to give them precious linens, hordes of livestock, vast amounts of wealth. He sends them out with, they're wealthier than they had ever been. And so they, they woo, we did it. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. And his heart is hard. And he goes after them with, it, the scripture says, with everyone at his disposal. All of his charioteers, all of his foot soldiers, and he's out of the front, and the Israelites see him coming. Egypt behind them, Red Sea in front of them, and of course we know that God comes through for them. Splits the sea, has the Israelites go through, the seas close back onto Pharaoh and his army, and the Israelites are free into the wilderness now. And it's in the wilderness, as the story goes, that God is present with them in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. And he talks to Moses directly in the tent of meeting. And Moses relays the word of God to the people. And he gives the people the Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments are? If you remember from last year when we went over this, they're a suzerain uh, treaty. And, and it's what kings would do to a, to a conquered people or to a rescued people, depending on how you look at it. And he, they would say, I will be your king, I will defend you, and these are my expectations. So it was a contract, it was a treaty, and so God enters into a treaty with these people. But before he, he gives them any law, he says, I am the Lord your God, I'm Yahweh, who has delivered you from Egypt complete relationship of grace. And God gives them the law. And in Exodus 24, we read that the people hear the law and the Lord has, and they say this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Ha ha, it seems like everything is going so well. And God, God then says, oh great, Moses and the leadership of, of Israel, come on up to the mountain and I will give you the, the Ten Commandments etched in stone with my very finger. And then the elders are like, kind of freaked out. Moses, you go. Interesting. So Moses goes to the top, and God is so gracious that he says, okay, if the people are afraid to come up to me, I will come down to them. So he gives Moses these incredible plans of a, of a tabernacle, a tent of worship, of meeting, 
and, and he wants Moses to come down and to build it so that God can be with his people. He'll come down to them if they won't come up to him. And that is exactly where we pick up the story this evening. That was three years in review, by the way. So Actually, seven, because we started in Genesis seven years ago. So, Okay, let me just put this bluntly. We are in chapter 32 tonight, but um, we have not covered chapters 25 through 40. Like 16 chapters, right, of, of Exodus. And most of these chapters in Exodus, I don't know if you've read this stuff, you should, um, if you're having trouble going to sleep. It is like detailed instructions of how much porpoise skin that the tabernacle needs and the dimensions. Maybe, Ben, maybe engineering-wise, yeah, you got, you're on this. Maybe you like that. Uh, how, how tall that the, the candelabras need to be and the, and the ornate, okay, so everything in detail for all of these chapters. And it's tempting to skip over all this stuff and just call it good, right? Uh, after all, we no longer have a tabernacle that we worship in. It's kind of, you know, since Jesus came, we, we're, we're Christians, we don't need to worry about this. Um, so it's tempting to look just move past it and get to really interesting stuff like Joshua and Judges and like Samson and all these crazy stories. On the other hand, God did preserve these chapters for us and, and they're part of the Bible and they were good enough to be part of sacred scripture for Jesus, so maybe I'm missing something here. And then I saw it. Let me show you the diagram that Jess is going to put up there. Okay, so, ooh, this is cool. It's 25, see it? 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. All of those chapters are God, are, are God telling Moses on the mountaintop about all the details, giving him the blueprints for the tabernacle. Oh, it's boring. Okay, 32. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Something happens in 32. People rebel. And then 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 are the people building the tabernacle in extreme excruciating detail. And verse 40, ah, that's the one where God's presence finally comes down and inhabits the tabernacle. Okay, that's going to be our last sermon in this series on Christ the King Sunday right before Advent starts. So this is, uh, we're going to deal with 32 tonight because I think the whole series hinges on what happens in Exodus 32. Thank you, Jess. So Sophia read the scripture for us earlier in the service. Just as a reminder, here's the scene. The Israelites have just pledged their loyalty to God. They've agreed to follow his laws. And then Moses goes up on a mountain to receive the stone tablets with the law engraved on them by the finger of God himself. I don't know what that really means. It's metaphorical. I don't, didn't know God had a finger. So, um, Anyway, Moses has been up on the mountain a long time. We know he was up there around 40 days, so sometimes sometime between zero days and 40 days, long enough for the Israelites who are left down in the valley to say, we don't know if this Moses guy is coming back. And so they go up to Aaron, who's Moses' brother and second in command and the high priest, and they say, we gotta do something. We have, I don't know if this guy's ever coming back, right? So they go to Aaron, and in our English translations say that the people gathered around Aaron. But in Hebrew, it's not so nice. It says literally they gathered against Aaron. In other words, this isn't a humble group saying, well, we're really distraught because Moses, you know, we're, we're, what do we do, sir? They're like, think more like a lynch mob. They're coming up to this guy, Aaron, and they're saying, here's what's going to happen. Make us a god. 
because we are freaked out without Moses. He was our mediator. He was the one that used to talk to us on God's behalf. He may never come back. Listen, we need something physical. We need something we can touch and see and take, you know, make us something. Why did they suggest that? Because that's exactly what every other surrounding nation was doing at the same time. It's, you, you got to remember, you, I, I have a, a, a transformative story. I wasn't always a pastor. And maybe you weren't always a follower of Jesus. There's a history that we have. Now think about these people had been in Egypt in a pagan nation with all of this idol worship going on for 400 years. How many generations is that? I mean, people had kids pretty quickly back then, but let's, let's be generous and say it was only four generations per century, right? 16 generations minimum of people steeped in that type of worship. They're out in the wilderness for just a, a short period of time. Yahweh's now showed them this new way of worship, and now his spokesman Moses is gone. Of course they're going to reflex and go back to what they knew, what everybody else was doing, and that is to build an idol. So they take the gold. How did they get the gold? Yeah, because of what God did, he gifted them the gold through the Egyptians. So this gold is gold that they're stewarding for God. Crazy, right? So they take that gold that God had given them, and they, they cast a, an, a, an idol of a bull or a calf, and they're, they're supposed to be stewards of this stuff. And in doing this, they break at least two of the Ten Commandments. Now, why a bull or a calf? Well, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, these animals were associated with power and fertility and performance. And Jess is going to show a photo here of, uh, of one of the depictions. So this is an Egyptian goddess and you can see the, the fertility getting uh, milk there and then the sun on top. And what these animals were ex uh, uh, used for as idols is they, they had strong backs. And so it was believed that the deity was not the actual animal or the actual idol, but that the deity would come and inhabit on top. And, be, and there's, there's another picture that Jess is going to show. This is at the British Museum. Corey and I were there a few years ago and I was just geeking out and all this Egyptian stuff. There's so much cool stolen artifacts but um anyway so here here's another depiction of that goddess and so this is this is what they'd seen all around egypt and then you know the babylonians and the canaanites and they, they had these types of things too so thanks jess uh, so this is what they're going for they're they're creating something known and, and the point is this is bad there are several ways that we could unpack this chapter exodus 32 one way to preach exodus 32 would be to focus on how moses intercedes for the people god wants to smoke them and start over and say moses i'm just gonna i'm so sick of them let's make a new thing with you you're my man and Moses intercedes for them. He says, no, no, don't do that. What would the, what would the nations say? And so we could look at uh, this as a case study for leadership, couldn't we? How, how a leader, you know, intercedes and, and on behalf of the people. Okay, so we could do that. Or we could take a theological bent and explore how God changes his mind when Moses intercedes for Israel. Does God change his mind? What does that mean? How do we understand that theologically? So we can geek out some other time over coffee or something over that, but that's not what we're going to do tonight. Or we could take an ethical bent, and we could look at how idolatry destroy, you know, destroys our soul and distorts our humanity, which is, we kind of dealed with that in, in the First Corinthians series. 
There are so many ways to take this text and to preach it, but what God has been revealing to me as I've been preparing uh, to preach the rest of Exodus is this, that worship matters. Laws and regulations are important, but by themselves, they don't change the way we think and they don't change the way we feel. And you won't change if your feelings and your passion aren't in it as well. So how many of you have ever been in a play or a musical, had a speaking part, okay, or a singing part? Okay, great. So when you were practicing that, if you just read your lines, let's say you had a significant part, if you just read your lines one time, would you feel prepared to go up on stage and to perform? Anyone? Most probably wouldn't, okay. So now, what if you had memorized your lines by yourself at your house or, or at the park, and you had them front and back, and then you're supposed to go into this multi, you know, there's tons of people on stage. You probably wouldn't feel quite ready either because acting and, and it's dynamic, and you, you've got to pick up on cues and know when this person comes in and that person comes in, and you're playing off of people's eyes and the way that their body works, right? So there's more to it than just you preparing by yourself with words. There's participation involved. I think to be fully formed human beings, we need both law, text, scripture, right? And we need participation. We need participation. The Israelites had the law, but in their moment of anxiety and emotion, they rashly turned to a form of worship that was in reality training them to go against the law. Do you see that? They had the law, and they wanted to worship God, but the way they were worshiping God actually was forming them and teaching them to do something different than what God had commanded. They turned to a pagan way of worshiping, and the first thing they did, of course, is made an idol. They didn't believe that that idol was actually God or that that idol delivered them from Egypt. They believed it was a representation of Yahweh, of their God. And ironically, while they were making an idol with God's gold so they could feel close to him, God was at the same time giving Moses instructions of how to use that gold to make things like the Ark of the Covenant and the candelabras for the tabernacle so that the people could rightly come before him and be intimate with him. God's way takes time. It's thoughtful. It takes patience. It requires right relatedness. The Israelites were unwilling to wait, and so they rushed in to their idolatry. And they thought they could force the living God to dwell in the image of a created thing, an image that they could approach when they felt like it, an image they, they could come near whether or not they were clean and holy, an image that they could carry around and pull out and manipulate whenever they wanted to. And it it's kind of shows that they wanted more of a talisman than they wanted a God. They wanted to control the relationship. And how often do we fall into a trap like that? Sometimes we compartmentalize our lives so that we keep God in certain places and we have our life in other places. Right? Sometimes we make an idol out of this or this, church attendance. Over history, people have made idols out of relics. I'm talking about Christian idolatry here. 
or images. And we like to think we know where God is so we can access him whenever we want to on our terms. And we believe, or we like to believe, that God will stay where we want him. It's funny, uh, you know, young kids don't have cognition to, to see the difference sometimes between metaphor and things. So Samara used to believe that Jesus was in her Jesus Story Book Bible, that like, that's where he lived, which is amusing when the child's three. Um, but I, 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 I think we can easily fall into that trap too. I want to connect with God. I get out my Bible. It's God time. Okay, time for work. God I'll see you when I get home, right? And we do our thing. We like, we like to put him in places so it's neat and tidy. And then we go do our things with a clear conscience because God's not really with us in those areas. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, worship matters. That's why God gave Moses clear instructions. Every detail of the space where they would worship from its size to the materials to be used to the decorations and the ornaments. Every piece of the tabernacle has meaning and teaches about God and creation and our humanity. So the people have this idol and then they're dancing around it, expressing their worship in kind of the pagan fashion. And the English uh, version in, in, in verse 6 says that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is a Hebrew way of saying they were doing sexual stuff with lots of people out in the open. And Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 10 as well as an as a illustration for immorality. And so they're completely off their rocker. They want to worship, and so they do it in the, in the, in the pagan way. Had they just waited, they would have learned God's way of worship through song and story and poetry and liturgy, truth and beauty. Instead, they they turned to what they knew from the nations around them. Worship matters. The way we worship informs how we think, who we are, who we become. The way we worship actually informs and transforms us, and in some cases, deforms us. You and I are made in God's image, but if we're taking our worship cues from the way the world expresses its devotion, we run the risk of being deformed. So here's the number one thing about biblical worship. Worship is a response to God's gracious initiative toward us. It is not something that we dream up It is not something we invent. It is not derived out of our own goodness or our own perspective or our own wisdom. You know, in Exodus 32, the people of God are in serious trouble. In a span of less than six weeks, they have pledged their allegiance to God on their high day uh, and and, and say, we're going to be obedient to your laws. And then they found a way to intentionally break at least two of the Ten Commandments. They deserve death. And they were, some of them actually did die, of 3,000. And then God does something gracious, unexpected, undeserved. He makes a new covenant with them. And he promises his presence, and he promises holy rest. And he says, I'm going to still bring you to the land I promised you. And by the end of chapter 34, the Israelites are ready to build the tabernacle of God. God knew they would fall again. He knew they needed a place of worship, a way, uh, 
a form of worship that would remind them of who they are, that would remind them of his faithfulness even when they kept sinning, and they needed a way to atone for that sin, the sacrificial system, the altar. And he provided all of that for them. And this gift of the tabernacle, as we will see, points to something far more, a savior. And of course, Jesus It's the gracious initiative of God that causes us to worship. And as we journey through these texts in the weeks to come, we're going to see how God's recipe for worship transforms us, humanizes us, and points us toward his most gracious act, coming in the person of Jesus to rescue us and to rescue all creation. Lord, we thank you that we have much to worship you for. Thank you for including us in this story that uh, seems so foreign to us, and yet it was because of this that you took great lengths to rescue all of humanity, and we are the benefactors of that. So thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us, for loving us. And I pray through these next weeks that by your grace, Holy Spirit, you would help us to see how our worship of you transforms us, that you would give us insight into into the things that please you, into the ways that engage with the human heart. Thank you that these texts, even about an ancient tabernacle, will still speak to us today and still bring life to us. I pray for our church as we engage with this over the next few weeks. That you would release creativity in us, awe and wonder of who you are. That you would give us a greater sense of your holiness and a greater sense of your graciousness. I pray that my brothers and sisters and I would become more and more humanized through this process because to be human is to be in your image as you intended. Bless you, Lord. Amen.